Amen. Well, it's great to be with you. I love coming out to Emmanuel, so thank you for having me. Um, I wanted to start this morning by telling you about an NBA basketball coach named Greg Popovich. So maybe you've, you know Greg Popovich, or probably not personally. I mean, it would be neat if you did know him personally. But you've heard of Greg Popovich. He was the, the coach of the Olympic basketball team this summer that won the gold medal. He's also the coach of the San Antonio Spurs. He's won five NBA championships. At the end of this season, it'll probably be true that he's won more NBA games than any other coach in NBA history. So, I mean, he is a big deal. And a few years ago, a reporter asked him, they said, hey, Pop, you know, at the end of all of this, given that resume, what's your legacy? What's your legacy? And Pop apparently laughed and said, what's my legacy? My legacy, probably food and wine. My legacy is food and wine. You see, on the court, Pop is known for the, kind of this legendary intensity. He gets right up in the faces of the, you know, the best NBA pl uh, players on the planet, the best basketball players on the planet, tells them exactly what they're doing wrong. But off the court, Pop is known for this legendary generosity. And, and NBA players know about this. Restaurants all over the country know about this. Because apparently Pop has this tradition of taking his players out to eat. And he doesn't just take them out to eat, but he takes them to some of the nicest restaurants in the country. And he plans out every detail. He figures out where everybody's going where everybody's gonna sit. He plans how many people are at the table for optimum dinner conversation. He picks out all of the foods that they're going to eat, all of the wine that they're going to drink. I mean, this reporter estimated that Pop might spend a million dollars a year just on food and wine. And, in, and he's so generous that if another Spurs player happens to be at the same restaurant at the same time, who's no longer on the team, Pop pays for them too. He picks up the bill every single time. And years later, Pop's players say that these meals, where they could just linger for hours talking to each other about all kinds of things, these meals are what gave them the team chemistry that allowed them to succeed on the court. This time spent building friendships and relationships, seeing from others' perspectives. And so as his general manager said, food and wine is Pop's legacy because to Coach Pop, food and wine are not just food and wine, but they are a vehicle to make and sustain connection. Food and wine as a vehicle to make and sustain connection. And so this morning, as, as we're continuing this series called Take Heart, about 11 sayings of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, to encourage those who are weary and wounded, I get to preach on this time where Jesus looked at his disciples, right? One of the last things that he would ever do on earth and where he said to them, take, eat. You ever think about that? The Lord who created the universe is sitting at the table feeding his disciples. This is what Jesus wants to be doing in his last hours with these men who have followed him for years. And in the, in the, the scripture that I read this morning, you know, take, eat, this is my body. 
You know, we, we recite this every week at the table. Millions of priests over the last 2,000 years have recited these words. And it's easy for them to become rote to us. We just, we're so used to hearing them. We stop thinking about, about what's actually happening. That Jesus is feeding his disciples. That God is feeding his people. Why? Why is he doing that? And why do we remember this week after week with this same ritual? I mean, do you ever think about that? It's, it seems kind of silly if you step back and think about it. This little piece of bread, this cup of wine. Why are we doing this? And the answer the answer we could say is similar to what that GM said about Greg Popovich. That Jesus, for Jesus, food and wine, they're not just food and wine, but these are his vehicle to make and sustain a connection with his people, even now. The Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, this is God's way of making and sustaining a connection with us, his people. So let's begin. I mean, you could tell, you could tell the entire story of the Bible just by talking about food. It's a story that moves right from garden to table. Huh? Yeah. Huh? Because in the beginning, in the beginning, there was food. In the beginning, there was a garden. There was plenty of food. There was a man and a woman who were born hungry, born dependent on God for sustenance, no different than us in that way. And God made trees to spring up from the ground that were pleasant to the sight and good for food, where the first command given to the people was what? To eat of any tree of the garden, except for one. Eat of any tree in the garden. And of course, even from there, you know, the the fall happens through eating. But a long time later, God calls a people to himself, and they end up in Egypt. And why are they there? Because there was a famine. Because there was no food. And a long time after that, they they end up in slavery. And for 400 years, they're in slavery. And, And then God leads them out by his servant Moses into a desolate place where there is no food. And then what does God do? He feeds them. He provides for them. He gives them food and water. And he tells them about this place where he's taking them, the promised land. And he describes the promised land using images of food, a land flowing with milk and honey, with orchards and vineyards and olive groves, which you did not plant, just like in the beginning, just like in the beginning, where the first man and first woman, they did not plant what was around them. It was given to them out of God's abundance, out of God's generosity. In the law given to Moses, God commands his people to feast. You know, isn't that interesting? It's not like like they had some cool things happen to them and they said, hey, we should remember this with a, a holiday or something. God actually commands them, you need to eat. You need to eat with each other. You need to feast and share what's yours, and by that, you're going to remember what I've done for you. He commands them to feast. And these meals, like Passover, I mean, this is where the identity of the Hebrews, the people of God, this is where their identity was shaped and formed generation after generation, right? And you can think about your own family. And as you think about what it means to have your last name, for most of us, 
you would describe that by talking about holidays, by talking about feasts and meals where you gathered with your family and the traditions that you would have. They defined you. They helped you identify this is what it means to be part of my family. We do this on Thanksgiving. We do this at Christmas. We do this at the Super Bowl, so on and so forth. And so like other ancient religions in, in, the, in the world, they were also command to have the sacrificial system, to offer food as, as an offering to God, except with this one very specific difference. See, in the other religions at the time, food is offered to the gods because in a, in a theological sense, the gods get hangry, <laughs> right? The, the gods of the other peoples are hangry. They're hungry. They get angry. So if you don't feed them, they're not going to bless you. If you don't feed them, you better watch yourself because they're going to get upset. Except for Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews says they might be like that, but I am not like that. I am different. I am a God of abundance. I don't need what you have to bring me. And so Psalm 50, he says, you know, do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? No. For the world and all its fullness are mine. He does not need what they bring. What he's after isn't the food itself. It's something different. It's communion. It's relationship with his people. The food is a vehicle to make and sustain connection with his people. And the dominant theme throughout the Hebrew scriptures is not of the people feeding God like the other religions, but it's of God feeding his people, providing for them, playing the role of host, even in the desolate places, picking up the bill every single time. This is how God wants to be known, as a generous God. And even later in Israel's you know, worst moment, when they, are, when they are about to move into exile because of the way that they've turned from God, because of their injustice in the land, even then, God has this message of grace for them that we read in the words of Isaiah. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Listen to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food that your soul may live. These themes of abundance, of, of generosity that the people they don't bring anything. They don't need to bring anything. But God, in his abundance, provides for him because that is who he is. He is a generous God who uses food to make and sustain connection with his people. And so hundreds of years after this, a man shows up and he gathers the people of God to himself and he gathers them in large numbers out in desolate places where there is no food. And what does he do? He feeds them. The feeding of the 5,000 shows up in each gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the only miracle that shows up in all four gospels. And so the gospel writers are agreed that if you're going to understand Jesus, if you're going to understand what he's doing in his ministry, you have to understand the feeding of the 5,000. You have to understand that Jesus is just like his father in heaven. He is a generous host who out of his own abundance feeds the people of God. 
And each gospel writer wants us to connect what Jesus did on that day, that miraculous feeding of the 5,000. Each gospel writer wants us to connect that to this, to the Lord's Supper that we do week in and week out, to the Last Supper, the last thing that Jesus does with his disciples before his death on the cross. And here's how Matthew, Mark, and Luke do it. They do it through the verbs that are used. So back in in Matthew 14, you can look at this later. In the feeding of the 5,000 there, what does Jesus do? But he takes the five loaves and two fish. He blesses God. He gives thanks. He breaks the loaves and he gives them to his disciples. He takes, he blesses, he breaks, and he gives. And now here in Matthew 26, verse 26, Jesus took the bread. And after blessing it, after blessing actually God for it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples. What's the connection here? Why is he connecting this miraculous feeding of the 5,000 to this this act that, that we practice now with this small piece of bread and this small cup of wine? Why connect those two? Well, if you look at the book of Acts, and you see the apostles empowered by the Holy Spirit, continuing the ministry of Jesus. And you see the apostles doing all of these miracles, right? They're they're healing the blind. They're, They're making the lame and the paralyzed to walk again. They're even raising people from the dead. But there's one miracle that Jesus did that they're not doing. They're not feeding the multitudes. Why? Because that is the miracle that Jesus is still doing and has been doing through his church, every time they gather around his table. Jesus is still a generous host, feeding the people of God out of his own abundance, still using food to make and sustain a connection with his people. His legacy is food and wine because his legacy is generosity, because God is a giver. That is who he is. Amen? And so if we, if we were to transition now, knowing that's who God is, then perhaps the, the question on your mind, or the question we could be asking, is if that's who God is, if he's given us all of this out of his abundance, then why are we so hungry? Why are we so dissatisfied in this world that he's made? Why does it not seem enough? what he's given us. And I think the answer to that is because these two things have been separated that shouldn't have been separated. But that that the gift that God gives has been separated from the fact that God is a giver. The giver of the gift has been separated from the gift, and we've sought one without seeking the other. You think back to, to the garden, right? What's, I mean, yes, they eat the, the forbidden fruit. They, they take what's not theirs. But what's like really happening here? What's really happening is that the serpent is tempting them that God is holding out on you. Yes, God has given you all of this, but why didn't he give you this? Why didn't he give you this? Wouldn't you be more satisfied if you had this in addition to all of that? 
And what the serpent is tempting him to do is to separate this connection between gift and giver. Because over here, when they're enjoying all of this abundance, there's just this natural connection. God is the one who gives, and we are the ones who receive and give thanks back to him. That's what Psalm 8 says. You know, Psalm 8 is this commentary on on the creation story in Genesis. And the psalmist looks out at, at the whole of creation and says, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. That gratitude, that thanksgiving is our natural response to God in the world that he's made, except sin has broken that. And then man and woman, they they seek this gift over here, the thing that was never meant to be a gift for them. And they sever this connection between gift and giver. They start pursuing the things without recognition of the ones who who is giving to them. And I think I was, uh, I was at the, the Art Institute earlier this week, and, and they have an exhibition that, that just really captures this right now, that captures our hunger and our desire to be satisfied, and also the futility of living in a world where, where we're never satisfied. So it's this exhibition on the work of an artist named Barbara Kruger, who I'd had never heard of her, but I, I kind of recognized some of the things as I walked around. She works a lot with images and with words. And so as you walk up to her exhibit, it's retrospective on her work. You see this, this big screen that says, I shop, therefore I am. And she's reflecting on this consumeristic society and especially a consumeristic society in the social media world where we are bombarded by images telling us This is what will satisfy you. This is what will give you a meaningful life. I shop, therefore I am. I consume, therefore I am. I need, therefore I shop. This never-ending cycle, right? And even on the stairs leading up to that exhibit, that retrospective, you know, each stair says something different. It says, "You, you are not good enough. You're not bad enough. You're not skinny enough. You're not pretty enough. You're not ironic enough. You're not true enough. You're not false enough. You're not hot enough. You're not man enough. You're not sexy enough. You're not ugly enough. You're not silly enough. You're not angry enough. You're not loud enough. You're not nothing enough. That is the experience of looking for satisfaction in our world, of just finding over and over and over again that you still don't have the thing you're looking for, that you're still hungry and dissatisfied. And the reason is because you're, you're searching for satisfaction. You're searching to, to satisfy your hunger in the gifts without recognition of the giver, without looking to the giver. And so this, this retrospective, I mean, it captures just the futility of life, that if you do this, then your only outcome can be this. You know, there's this, there's this room that you walk into. It's huge. And there's just words everywhere, you know, it's like, it's like you're living in Instagram or you're living inside of Twitter, just being bombarded by words, looking all around. And it says this, it says, in the end, something else begins. You've had your chance. You win or you lose. History happens. Nothing matters. All is forgotten. All will disappear. That's, that's the only outcome, that futility, that despair of, of looking for satisfaction in the gift and not the giver. And so how does, how does the table, how does the table speak to that? How does the table satisfy our hunger? 
Here's how that happens. In the Eucharist, in Holy Communion, God feeds us what we truly need. He gives us himself. That is what we're hungering for. We are eternal beings. And so what we hunger for at the end of the day is the eternal God. It is the only thing that can satisfy us. In the Eucharist, God feeds us what we truly need. And then God actually teaches us how to relate to the rest of the world, how to find satisfaction in the rest of the world. You see, because in the table, the gift and the giver become one. The gift, the bread, this bread is my body. This cup, this gift is my blood. That separation between gift and giver is no more. These two are brought together. And when you receive Holy Communion, you don't just receive the gift, but you also receive the giver. And so what does that do as we turn outwards? And as we look to the world, because we're still people who need to eat. We're still people who operate in this society. We're still people who are drawn to beauty and to good things. We're still consumers in all of those ways. So what does the table do? How does it teach us how to consume? What what it does is it teaches us gratitude, right? Because it teaches us that those beautiful things, right, that you furnish your apartment with, the, the car that you drive, the paycheck that you have, that all of these are good, but they are good gifts from our Heavenly Father. What we need is not simply the gift, the thing, but what we need is intimacy with our Father. And so we respond in gratitude, Lord, thank you for this paycheck. Thank you for this this apartment where I live. Thank you for this car that I drive. I mean, you can do this as you drive through the city. Thank you for the beauty of these trees. Thank you for the colors on the lake, the beauty that's there. Thank you for the beauty of this, this city, of the creativity that you've put in men and women who bear your image. Thank you for for the skill and the engineering of the people who live here. Thank you for this cup of coffee and the engineering that it took to bring this to my lips. Thank you, Lord. And that practice of gratitude, what that does is it connects gift and giver. And it allows you to enjoy this world as the world was meant to be enjoyed. It's a good, good thing. And you might find that as you do this, that you begin thanking God for things that you never thought you would be thankful for, right? Like you might end up thanking God for even something like suffering or some drudgery, some mundane task, right? Not because God is is the, the cause of our suffering. God does not do evil. That's not who he is. But he allows suffering in our lives. And as you go through these things, those those sufferings can actually be a means of communion. Lord, thank you. Actually, I thank you that you would see me worthy to have, you know, evil spoken of me behind my back. Because, Lord Jesus, this happened to you too. And there is a way for me to join you in that. To join you in being slighted, being wronged. Or as you're, as you're doing some mundane task, if you're a parent, and as, as you are cleaning up water for the millionth time because your kid did not put the top on his cup, right, or her cup, or because then they took it off, 
And they said, you know what? I know I've done this a million times, but I'm just curious what's going to happen if I pour this out. Right? And as you are down on your knees yet again, sopping that up at the end of a long, long day, you can say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, even for this mundane task, because Jesus, you too know what it's like to do the job that nobody wanted to do. Right? When you washed your disciples' feet, you served, you did the thing that nobody wanted to do. And so in this mundane task, I get to join you in that. I get to join you in that ministry. I get to become like you in that. I get to become like you in your suffering that I might share with you in your glory. Those are the words of 1 Peter chapter 4. God is a giver. It is who he is. It is who Jesus reveals him to be. And we are meant to enjoy his creation in communion with him, receiving his gifts with gratitude, knowing that it is through relationship with him, it is through communion with the giver that we are truly satisfied. And what we receive this morning at the table is a promise. We receive a promise that what God gives to us, what God longs to give to us, is nothing less than his very self. God wants to give you his very self. And so at the table, we have a foretaste of this day when our hungers will be truly and finally and ultimately satisfied. And we will feast with Jesus, our friend, our elder brother, our Lord and Savior. We will feast with him and never hunger again. Amen.